You're listening to Trek FM. There was a little bar in Mill Valley where all the Starfleet trainees used to go. The 602 Club. You know it. <laughs> I was there more times than I can remember. Welcome everyone to Trek FM's local watering hole. We've got the hosts from the network coming by sometimes and friends who will just talk all things geeky with us. And so order your drink from Ruby. Uh, of course, uh, we've got plenty of, of things that you might uh, find in the British Isles because again, we're going to be talking about another Hobbit film today. We're going to go into the desolation of Smaug. And with me today, it was going to be Alice and Megan, but unfortunately, well, uh, Alice found the Arkenstone and came down with an acute case of dragon sickness. Megan was able to take it away, but she's not going to be able to join us tonight. Megan, how is Alice doing? Is she going to be okay? I think she'll make it through. Uh, I did leave her behind while there was that dragon chasing us. I used my magic ring and just left her behind. I got to say, yeah, I was a terrible partner. Um, yeah. Hopefully, she'll be okay and be able to make it back there for the Battle of the Five Armies. So. But... Um, one of the most interesting things about kind of diving back into Middle-earth and the desolation of Smaug here, and, and something that I had, had been thinking about, I was like, we talked about last time that the films use a lot more CGI and things like that and, yeah. and instead of the bigatures and, and a lot of the extras that they had. So I went back and looked and I realized after doing some researching, you know, Jackson got over two years of filming and additional pickups with the Lord of the Rings to put that together. That's just before the movies even started coming out. And so the Hobbit films, though, he really gets about half that time. And so it makes a lot of sense that they use a lot more CGI instead of those bigatures and things of that nature because those take so much longer to build. Whereas with the Lord of the Rings, he had the time to just allow his people to create all this stuff. So I thought that was something that was really interesting and something to take into account. I don't think we realize how much Jackson was at being asked to do, especially once they decided it was going to be three films and instead of two. Yeah, that's something I hadn't even realized or even really thought about. And now that you mentioned that, like that does make sense. I remember all the buzz around the Lord of the Rings movies before it was coming out and all of the actors doing like the talk shows and stuff. And I remember they would talk about all the reshooting that they were doing um, going back to New Zealand. Um, and that was like six months almost of reshoots, I think, now that you're talking about. I mean, they did a lot of work in post-production. So that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it really gave them a lot of time to be able to do some things that they just weren't able to do with the ex accelerated nature at least for the hobbit films as compared to the lord of the rings i mean even though there was a lot of time for them working on things between the time that they started working on this in like 2007 all the way towards when you know they they finally got to start filming because the rights issues got fixed um you know because of all that inconsistency of when they were going to get to start and then switching directors and all of that kind of stuff you get, it gets really compressed. So um, I, I think that I just would love anyone who goes to see the films and, and maybe have that complaint, 
just kind of think about those behind the scenes things that happen in filmmaking that that keep that kind of stuff from being able to happen um and you know when you watch those lord of the rings extras especially if you're watching it on the extended edition they have a lot of time to work on it and they have and they do as much as they can that's one of the things i got to give it they build lake town in the parking lot in new zealand so that they can build and make it as real as possible they rebuilt the entire place of brie just for that very first scene they they went back they got their entire um architectural map out rebuilt brie and they even built they even built the prancing pony so that it was a complete walkthrough set so you could walk in the front door and be inside it was an entire set so that's pretty I think amazing that, yeah that's pretty amazing um so Jackson is definitely somebody who cares about what things look like and how realistic things are. And if he can do it, he will do it. And it it really does go to show so that when the story does start out and Brie here in this film, I think it's it's a really awesome scene. Of course, the movie also starts out with Peter Jackson's cameo as well. <laughs> yeah, he's not <laughs> so, on that giant character. That's right. <laughs> that's right. One of the coolest things, too, Megan, about uh, this film as compared to the other film is that we get mostly all new places. Yeah, that's true. We do. You know, we'll, we we do visit Bree. We've been there before. But then we're going to go to Bjorn's house. We're going to go to Mirkwood, the Elven Kingdom the wood, of the Woodland Elves there, Lake Town and Erebor and Doggledore. We've never been to any of those places. And I think just for me as a fan... It was one of the things that made this whole film so enjoyable because I was seeing all this new stuff in Middle Earth. Whereas the first film was very much, you know, if you'd seen Lord of the Rings, it was very much a retread of a lot that you had seen before. Yeah, even some of the new locations that they added into The Hobbit that weren't in the book, um, like where they first encounter the orcs, um, mm-hmm. was where Frodo was stabbed by the... Um, Right. By the ring rates. And, uh, you know, during that scene, I was just like, yeah, I've I've seen this already. Like, I want to see something new. Um, so this movie was really exciting because of all the new locations. And I think they did a great job with a lot of them. Well, starting out in Brie is a place that we had been before. And I think it's a really great uh, addition to the, the Hobbit story because in the Unfinished Tales... Thorin um, and Gandalf actually do meet. There is mm-hmm. a meeting between those two, and they get to talk about everything that's happened. At that point, um, Gandalf has gotten the map and the key as well from Thrain, uh, and it's a little bit different here in the extended cut of this movie, the way the timeline kind of works out and the characters and everything, but he's gotten that, and they, they decide that they will go on this quest. And what's also interesting though, is that in, in this film, they're using the, the, the storyline of the Arkenstone for the dwarves to be able to get rid of Smaug by uniting all of them, which really changes things from the book because in the book they just go and they're going to, well, I don't really know. They don't have a plan. 
That's one they, of the things just, I like about the yeah. book. <laughs> yeah. They didn't actually, think it through. <laughs> we were talking, so Educating Geeks dragon. just recorded a, a podcast covering the novel. And that was one of the things that we talked about a lot was, these guys really didn't think a lot of this through. <laughs> it really is just an unexpected journey yeah like they 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 go on this journey and there's not a lot of planning involved which is so funny because you know you're gonna get to the mountain and as far as you know there's still a dragon inside yeah they knew that guy was there they just didn't have any thought about what they were gonna do after they got right. there and the fact that there is a giant dwarf eating dragon in there Right, uh, and and so you have a thief, but he is he going to you know steal gold, you know, like one little bucket at a time? <laughs> <laughs> so I thought that was really funny. It really does set up the scene and really enter you back into the story, and then we end up right back at them running away from the the orcs, and Bilbo has been spying for them and seeing who's following them and all that, and. He tells them that there's a brand new character following them, and it looks like a bear. And goodness, does this bear look crazy, scary, like huge hulking thing. I mean, it's like, I don't know, it looks kind of more like a prehistoric bear. Oh, yeah, it was huge. Big black it's bear. Sh- and so that's when we end up at Bjorn's house. And uh, this is something that for the extended version of the film, they really extend because there's a whole other scene that happens there where in the morning when they wake up, Bjorn is out chopping wood and uh, the dwarves are kind of coming out maybe one at a time, two at a time because he's not a big fan of dwarves in the first place. And Gandalf is trying to play it off that there aren't that many and he keeps getting more and more agitated and it's the only time you've ever seen like Gandalf really worried like he's kind of scared of Bjorn which I thought was really interesting and so what did you think Megan of of that whole brand new set we've never seen this place and then this brand new character well Bjorn's actually one of my favorite parts of the book um so actually I was a little bit disappointed with these scenes when I saw the movie because it was it felt so short. So the fact that they extended that, um, I, I absolutely have to watch the extended version now. Um, and one of the things that they had cut out from the book was this trick that Gandalf plays um, where he brings the dwarves in two at a time. And that's what happened when they first arrived at Bjorn's place in the book. So I'm glad to hear that they put that back in because I thought that was hilarious in the book. Um, And I love that Gandalf is very cautious around Bjorn because that's how he is in the book as well. Um, He he understands the guy and he's definitely formidable. Um, So it's good to see that that's kind of brought back in as well. Yeah, and it's it's pretty cool because... uh, at least in the movie version, you know, he introduces himself to Bjorn and says, you know, I'm Gandalf, Gandalf the Grey. And mm-hmm. Bjorn's like, I've never heard of you. And, you know, so it's it's Gandalf can't even go on his reputation at this point, which is very funny because usually Gandalf walks into a place and everybody kind of knows who he is. It, yeah. Even if they've, you know, never met him before, he has a reputation, but... Gandalf is walking on eggshells and that's really funny to watch Ian McKellen play that because it's just it's very funny it's very disconcerting to see Gandalf so off his game (laughs) I will have to check that out for sure because that I mean hands down 
I just love the visit to Bjorn's house. The, the way that they approach his place in the book is so interesting and the way Gandalf behaves around him is really interesting and I I really wanted to see Ian McKellen play that so you're convincing me on the extended edition. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, you're going to have to go back and watch it again. Oh, darn. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> More hobbits. What did you think of just his house in general? Was it kind of what you thought of when you read the book? Or did they do something completely different for you in the movie? It's not how I pictured it. Um, I pictured it a lot bigger and maybe a little bit more elaborate. But with all the animals and stuff in there, um, I mean, I, th- I thought it fit his character really well. I loved all the bumblebees buzzing around and all the animals hanging out inside. Um yeah, I don't know. You know, it's one of those things that's always hard to translate from a book from whatever the audience has in their mind versus what the director has in their mind. Um, but I really enjoyed it. It was one of the better parts. It was one of the parts that I liked the best about the movie, and it's definitely one of my favorite parts of the book. Well, that's one of those scenes, too, that they did film on location, and they filmed in a place called Paradise. Mm, it was a gorgeous location. It literally Beautiful looks lighting like Paradise. There. Yeah, it was fantastic. So really, really neat. In fact, they were scouting locations and Peter Jackson sees this area there and he loves this big old 200-year-old oak tree and he wants to build basically the entire place around it, especially the back part, which you see in the extended version that Mm. they had to cut out. Unfortunately, there's a huge windstorm and that windstorm knocked over that tree. Oh, wow. So they literally built a tree that looked exactly the same. And half the people that came back when it was finished didn't realize that wasn't the same tree. Wow. It was awesome. They're like, I was totally convinced that was a real tree. <laughs> it's so funny. So this is, I just these are the kind of things that they, the details that they'll put in, I think that are really fantastic. Their art department is just outrageously talented. Like all of their sculptors and painters just incredible people yeah really amazing i i think one of the best production companies that is out there you know it it's it reminds me of very much the way that lucasfilm and george lucas would work you know they would spend hours upon hours you know just people coming in with maquettes you know and and until one of them finally was just right, exactly what the director was looking for. And, and Weta works very much like that with Peter Jackson. And I think that's a really neat thing. It's it's unique. You know, I don't, I don't know if everybody gets those things right. I don't think people have the luxury of that very much anymore either, which is a shame because sometimes that's what it takes to make your craft as perfect as you want it to be. Yeah. Definitely. Well, and I think that really kind of speaks to, you know, sometimes having a time crunch can really benefit you. Yeah. And sometimes, though, having more time really, as I think we were talking about earlier, you know, with Lord of the Rings, all that time that they had really benefited them with how they approached filming the movie with, you know, the bigotures and those kind of things, the all the latex suits and the extras and that kind of stuff. That stuff really pays off. Now, most people don't realize, unless they watch the extras for The Hobbit, there are a lot of extras in suits, um, especially in the goblin town. Mm-hmm. But Peter wanted them to be able to move in a way that was even less human because they were underground. And just really 
it was easier for them to try and do CG. You know, they wanted to do what they had done before, but it just was one of those places where CG in the end was just easier and better and more cost effective for everyone uh, time wise and stuff. So, you know, sometimes you just use the tool that works best for what you want to accomplish. And sometimes CG is the best and sometimes um, practical is the best. And you just want to make sure your CG looks good. And sometimes, you know, even in this film, there are a few places where they could have beefed up the CG, I think, uh, and made it yeah. a little bit better. But that's one of the, the also the issues that I think they had with this film is a lot of the stuff was new. They were having to create really quick because it was a they were adding a lot more to this movie. So one of the neat things to I found is that by having it be three films, we really do get to spend some time on characters that are going to be important later and that are going to come back and have a, a role to play. And Bjorn's one of those characters. And so by, uh, you know, he comes back at the end of the book. Yeah. But, you know, his his part in that original chapter that he's in is, is pretty short. It's not really long. And, and you don't go into a lot of depth, but... I liked that I felt like I knew the character more and because he's going to play a part later. Yeah, and it's even when he comes back, it's not a long part, but it's an important part. Oh, yeah, exactly, because he's going to be one of the things that helps kind of save the day yeah. at the end of the, of the next story. So the other cool part about the extended edition is that it really does beef up that connection between the Necromancer and Raising of the Witch King and the Nazgul and the Orcs and even Smaug. Because Bjorn has a conversation with Gandalf right before they leave on the ponies that he gives them. And he tells them that he's seen comings and goings of orcs from Dogledore. And there's a, a, he's, he's realized there's an alliance between these two. And putting all these pieces together for Gandalf as he is. And then, of course, right as they get to Mirkwood in the extended edition as well... He kind of has one of those trance-like conversations with Galadriel. And she is the one who sends him to uh, the High Fells to check out the tomb of the Witch King. Which, all of these things, they, I think, was great in the extended edition of really strengthening that storyline. Because it, it really does, again, it's going to add to the end of the, the last movie where all of these armies come from. Yeah. So getting to Markwood, um, this was one of those things that was kind of interesting too because, you know, we had been to Fangorn and we've kind of seen old creepy forests. This is a whole new level of creepy. Yeah, and it was pretty short in the theatrical release, so I'm glad to hear that they beefed that up in the extended version a little bit. I got to be honest because this is where the spiders are. I didn't watch a lot of this scene. Even in the um, in the movie theater, I couldn't watch a lot of it. And even just on the rewatch, I couldn't watch a lot of it because it's it was just too creepy for me. It's just too much with the spiders and the spider webs everywhere. Um, but it looked beautiful, the parts that I did watch. <laughs> <laughs> Are you afraid of spiders as well? They scared the absolute bejesus out of me. And I feel so bad about it because... I know it's completely irrational and I know that they're like they're good bugs they eat flies and all the nasty bugs and stuff but they just they scare the crap out of me 
I think it's funny because Peter Jackson's scared of spiders too, and oh he doesn't God. like them. He and he's <laughs> responsible for the scariest spiders in cinema. That's like a five-minute scene of just spiders everywhere. Yeah, like I can't. It is. I've tried to watch it, and I just can't. I have to like eventually like the primal brain just takes over, and I have to flee the room. It's terrible. Well, and what is funny is if you were reading the book, I don't. We don't all get this, I don't think, because we don't think about it in timetables, but they spend about a week in Mirkwood. Yeah, they're there for a long time. Exactly. And so I did like the fact that the extended version really beefs this up and they do the whole thing where Bomber falls into the water Mm. and, you know, he comes enchanted and he's sleeping and And all of that happens. Exactly. Um, They do the whole part where Thorin shoots at the white stag and... It runs off and, you know, Bilbo's worried saying you shouldn't have done that and all of those kind of things they kind of add in. It adds to this just craziness along with the music and then um, just the kind of like weird psychedelic nature of this forest and then the spiders. It's just really, really well done, really creepy. And I have to say too, the work here that the digital team does with the spiders and all of that is fantastic. Oh, yeah. They absolutely did a great job with that. I mean, it says a lot that I can't stay in the room for very long because the spiders look really good. The forest looks incredible. Those reddish leaves are just gorgeous. The spider webs everywhere. I mean, it was just it's a beautiful section of the film. Yeah. And they had created... You know, the last film they had done a special uh, practical effect with with the spider webs, and they were able to create a new one that kind of made gave it that much more mesh look. Yeah, so they could really encase everybody in the spider web, which it just made it so ugh, like just so uber creepy. Yeah, I did not. I don't want to touch that stuff. Like, I have no desire to see what that feels like. It looks too yeah. realistic. Uh. Well, and what was kind of nice about the scene in Merkwood as well is that you know Bilbo loses his ring and the ring is starting to slowly kind of corrupt him just a little bit you know when he goes after that baby spider who he has no idea if it's really going to attack him or not or if it's just you know wandering around but he just goes all like Rambo on the thing and it's it's a creepy scary scene and I think Martin Freeman just plays it so well. He did a great job with that for sure. The way he said, because he says, it's mine, it's mine. He really just channels Andy Serkis in that scene. It's fantastic. Yeah, I agree with you. I I think all in all, Merkwood is is one of those places where the film really shines of of creating just kind of a new environment and a a really creepy environment. You know, one of those places in Middle Earth, there's so many places where you're like, I I want to go to there, and then I do not want to is, go to there. Yeah, no, nobody wants to no. go to Merkwood. <laughs> at least this Merkwood. Um, and so, well, then of course it, we we end up with the woodland elves saving them, and well, taking them under arrest. Right. And uh, man, this scene when every time that Legolas kind of comes down the spider web, and then like kills the the spider, and then ends up sliding on the ground and then coming up with his bow it's just awesome this is definitely a movie of elves being totally awesomely badass um which i fully support yeah i mean 
Evangeline Lilly one can be on screen as much as she wants. Oh, absolutely. But she is really, really good, uh, especially at the physical nature of the elves and their fighting and and everything like that. I think that she just totally sells it. She makes it look easy, too. Yeah, she really does. So uh, I, I heard on the extras, you know, they talked about her and that a lot of the... The stunt ladies really hadn't worked with somebody just that physical and just that good. And so that I think that's really cool. It speaks very highly of just how much she worked on that. And, you know, I think for me as well, as we talked about last week a little bit with her, I think there is a lot more to the character in her than just kind of the romance angle. Because I was noticing when I was rewatching it, the idea that she's... The elf who's kind of nurturing in Legolas, that idea that the elven people, at least these elves, these wooden elves, need to be part of the world around them. Yeah. And how important that is. And I think that's kind of a neat thing because in Tolkien's uh, world, there is kind of this underlying racism throughout a lot of the different races towards each other. And it's those special characters that really break those molds. And I thought it was nice that when, okay, we're going to add a female character here, she's going to be that one that's really breaking that mold for them. Yeah, definitely. Well, and, you know, those wood elves in particular, they're so cloistered. Like, they live in their in their palace that's totally closed off from everything, and she's she's the one who's willing to step out of that comfort zone and ask the questions it seems like I having not seen the extended edition I don't know how much they go into her backstory with um Therindil but it seems like she's kind of already on the outside looking in with her own people and maybe she's looking for someone else to identify with yeah that's a that's a good thought what did you think about Lee Pace as Thranduil uh, you know he's he's a new type of elf you know the the other elves that we've met Elrond is super cool super chill awesome dude you know like I want to stay at Rivendell with him yeah you know you get to uh Lothlorien and Galadriel's there and I'm like Gimli I fall in love with Galadriel I want to live there you know I get to Thranduil's land and I'm not really sure I want to live here <laughs> yeah I don't know if I'd want to stay there either um Thranduil seems like kind of a hardline dude doesn't he He's chopping off He's, orc heads and... Yeah, he... It's like he gets off on being withholding. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I think he's really happy being in his hidden fort where no one else is coming in and he's totally in charge and nobody's questioning him. Um, he, I think he really likes the position of authority that he's in. And Lee Pace is just fantastic. He brings such fabulousness to the Thranduil character um the way he holds himself is very regal but very different from how Galadriel holds herself um so I like the the I like the juxtaposition between these two elves of power that you see in this film well and I think yeah you're exactly right and you get this just air of arrogance yeah just by the way that he speaks by the way he looks at other characters by the way that he moves yeah everything about him says 
I'm superior. Yes, very much so. And he's, and he also feels like, whereas when I think of Galadriel, I think of her as very light and ethereal and airy. He feels very rooted to the ground and very heavy. Um, and obviously, like, that's what these actors are bringing to their characters. But I think that arrogance, like, he's got his feet planted on the ground and he's just such an arrogant guy. I love it. It's a very... It's a fantastic piece of acting from Lee Pace. I could see Lee Pace in anything. He's great. Oh, he really is. Um, you know, I, I fell in love with him in Pushing Daisies. Which I still need to watch, but my friend Brie yeah, loves that show. You will. Uh, it's fantastic. I I hated that that show got canceled because it was one of my favorites. And he, the role that he plays is complete opposite of Thranduil. He plays the just lovable you know um has a, a way of speaking that just is fluid and hilarious all at the same time he's just really funny and so to see him play this role and of course you know also being guardians of the galaxy where he was ronin as well unrecognizable uh yeah exactly so very well done i, I think lee pace is going to be somebody that we're going to be watching a lot of and i'm very glad you know when he first strolled up in the unexpected journey on an elk yeah i was like that dude is awesome he is I awesome be him. He's yeah badass. so yeah it's very cool so we've got now we've met legolas's dad and you know we can kind of see where legolas kind of gets some of his aversion to dwarves you know at the beginning of the lord of the rings and even though he's had this experience with uh, these dwarves here but we don't hear about Legolas in the book, but they've brought him in because, well, it makes sense to have him here. Yeah, I'm totally okay. Like, that's one of the big changes that I'm totally okay with um, that they brought him in. I wasn't wild about it when I f first saw the... F um, I wasn't wild about it when I first saw An Unexpected Journey, but it's really grown on me. Um, it makes a lot of sense for his character. And for the Tariel character that they brought in, it fills in that backstory for him and one of my favorite little bits in this movie is um him getting to see the picture of Gimli which I thought was a great oh, yeah. little <laughs> a great little nod to his future best bud that's my wee lad Gimli yes yeah that's that awesome great. yeah that's very funny who is this your your son that's my wife <laughs> I love dwarf jokes love yeah what did you think of just the woodland realm in general? Because, you know, they live underground instead of in the trees or, you know, in, in those beautiful um, mountain retreat-like homes like in, in Rivendell. What did you think of the way that they had created what Tolkien described in the book for the woodland elves? I, I enjoyed it a lot. I loved the way they kind of mixed the rock and the wood. Um, it felt very homey. You know, I wouldn't want to live there just because of Thranduil, but I wouldn't mind living there if he wasn't around because it actually looked like a really cozy place, maybe kind of Hobbit Hole-like because of all the rich textures. Um, the lighting in there was beautiful. Um, and then it, they kept all of those what we've come to see as elven details with all of the really detailed scroll work and those beautiful columns outside the main door. Um, I wanted to see more of it. Yeah, I'm with you too. I, I think that this was a place that I, w I just wanted to explore more of. And I think that speaks to, even though this isn't a bigotry or something like that, it felt 
so vast and beautiful and and ornate and and mysterious all at the same time so that like a Rivendell or Lothlorien or any of those kind of places that we've seen in Middle Earth I just want to go there and get lost yeah exactly you know, and just I'd love to go there for a vacation and just wander around for a couple yeah, weeks. Yeah, uh, hopefully run into Tariel, uh, have a few elven drinks, which apparently when you get to the cellar, you know, in the Lord of the Rings, Legolas has that whole thing with Gimli where he can't get drunk, you know? Right. And he's like, I feel like some, apparently elven wine that is pretty some strong, strong yeah, yeah. You, you, goodness. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I love I wine, love so I'd love to try some elven wine. Whoo! That's like, <laughs> what is that, like 150 proof or something? It must Just... be. I'll take a thimble, please. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. What did you think of that scene? Because, you know, in, in the book, that is a pivotal scene, and it's a very big scene. What did you think of the way that they handled that? Well, I, we talked a little bit about it um, when we were discussing the first film. Um, you know, we talked more about the actual barrel ride, Um it happened real quick in the book it takes I mean in the book they're there for quite a while and Bilbo's wandering around trying to help break them out and you know in movie style he just kind of stumbles upon the keys and gets them out really quickly um I enjoyed it it was over quickly and then we got into the over the top silly barrel ride that we're all gonna go on at Universal Studios here next summer but um it's over quickly. I think the thing that I love about that scene one is that all the dwarves are like, "No, I'm not getting in those barrels." So, <laughs> you know, I, that's crazy. And there's a quick scene where Bilbo looks at Thorin, and Thorin tells all the men basically to shut up and get in the barrels. Yeah, he and just says, "Do Frodo. what they say." That was a really it, nice moment yeah, between them. Um, so I thought that that was really neat because you know. It it shows how Thorin really has come to trust Bilbo. Yeah. And it also makes the trust as it gets broken slowly throughout the rest of the film and into the next film between them harder to watch because Bilbo has just earned that in the last film. He's earning it now and then it's going to slowly start to be broken because Thorin is going to start to go slowly mad because right. of the gold. Well, and I always love moments when... Um, filmmakers can show us nonverbal communication between characters because that says a lot about their relationships right when they can just like give each other a look and know exactly what needs to happen there's a great scene in the first season of game of thrones that's just like that that i love um so yeah that's a great little like three second moment that i i really enjoyed that too yeah well and then <laughs> bilbo lets them all go and then and he then forgets he's just himself. standing there. Yeah. And I love the way that Martin Friedman plays it. Like <laughs> he's just kind of standing there and he looks around <laughs> and you can tell in his head he's going son of a <laughs> and he's like stomping and then he kind of walks backward. And then I love that it just lets him go and it falls. Yeah. And then there's another great moment with Thorin where he's like, welcome, Mr. Baggins. And then he's like, now we can go. And I just love that all the dwarves were waiting there for their rescuer, you know, because yeah. now it's time for them to rescue him. So that was a lot of fun. Yeah, Martin Freeman played that really well. I love how as he's sliding back, he's just standing completely upright. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he does not budge. He just goes with it. <laughs> it's awesome. 
Well, that whole scene, what I, what was really interesting in, in the extras is that, you know, they actually built this whole waterworking system that went around in this huge circle that is kind of like a log ride, but it was with barrels. So they could film these guys in water. And then and they you can found. Tell. Yeah, you could tell that they're really in water, yeah. that they're actually doing a lot of this. Um, the next thing that they did to add is that they 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 had this area where a dam would open every you know thirty to forty minutes. It would create this ridiculous looking, uh, just amazing whitewater rapid down this river, and then as it lowered, it would allow them to like, take all these digital pictures so that they could go in and digitally create this based on what it actually looked like. So when they were creating the digital model for the water to flow over, it would flow over just... So I thought it was so interesting that, okay, look, we're going to do this. We're going to do as much of it as we can for real. And then we're going to mirror and what we're going to add and what we're going to try and work with, we're going to do it as as, um, close to what we have as our master as possible and putting all things things together and knowing that water is still the hardest thing for them to do digitally you know this doesn't look perfect i'm not gonna say that but it sure does look like a heck of a lot of fun and then when bomber bumps up and like rolls i mean for like 20 minutes it feels like it's ridiculous it's It's so hilarious it's awesome. And the fact that you're laughing, it's fine because yeah. that's the whole point is this is the Hobbit and this is one of those moments where things are lighter and funnier and I really just enjoy the fact that they went silly here yeah. because it's the Hobbit. It's okay to go silly. It was the right place to do it too. Um, and when he comes a whirling dervish, yeah. just, oh, so funny. My husband said it reminded him of Hook. <laughs> Yeah, it does kind of remind me a little bit of Hook. But, yeah. uh, you know, f- personally, I'm not a fan of Hook. Um, but I, I because I don't like what they do to Neverland. Um, All right, I'll give the, you that. The, the 90s and the fact that now it's always the 90s. But, yeah, I get that. Yeah, <laughs> this That kind of silliness they do definitely go for here. And I yeah. think it completely works. And, you know, again, they do as much of this as they can. Uh, for real and so when they're getting out of the barrels too that's all real they were in a real river there in New Zealand and everything and pulling themselves out and trying to get out was is is all done real and and then of course that's where we meet the bard for the very first time and we're about to head into Lake Town so this whole area of of the film I think was a great place for them to really do what they did in the movie. Um, I think that this is the place where you do need to beef up the roles of the bard and the master because, again, they're going to become important in that last film. And if you don't create some actual character for them, they just come off as very, like, one note. And Yeah, and that's how they kind of come off in the book. Like, you get to know them after they've been there for a while, but we can't really do that in this movie world that they've created because if they just show up in the third movie, no one's going to understand who they are or what they're doing there. Um, so, yeah, this is like the time to bring them in and really introduce them. 
I have to say, though, in the movie theater, as soon as Stephen Fry shows up, I was like, it's Stephen Fry. We were laughing so hard in the movie theater just because it was Stephen Fry. I loved that casting decision. Well, and it is it is just amazing. And in the extended version, there's even more of him, which is great. And it's just disturbing. Um, <laughs> he really they, went for it with this master character. Yes, like. <laughs> yes. Uh, well, and and again, this is one of those places where the look and the feel of everything that they do in these movies is is what informs you about the character, how it, he dresses, you know, yeah. uh, the way his mustache is, the way his hair is done. I mean... All of these things, the place that he lives. Um, the way he demands brandy first thing in the morning. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> uh, the way Alfred, you know, uh, throws the pee out and it just splashes <laughs> yeah. back on the window. Uh, though All of those things, just uh, really, really well done. And again, what's interesting is I was reading the end of the book and these cues really are in the book for the characters of the bard and the master and so I, I found, as we were talking about last time, and Alice had mentioned that Peter Jackson really does his job at adaptation, is that they take the things from the book, like those small little things, and they make them into the character pieces. Yeah, and, absolutely. Yeah, and they're really good at that. Yeah, I think they, I think Peter Jackson exaggerated both of them a lot, um, but I think it works in this case. I don't know if I would agree with it like if someone was to write a sequel or something. I don't know if I would have taken those characters in the same direction, but it's a film. It's supposed to be lighthearted. Um, and I just, I love what they did with the master character. He's just so gross. He's got all those boils on his face. Uh, like he's just, it was brilliant. I loved how fun, how funny he was. Well, you'll love the extended version where he eats bollocks. Oh, gross. So, okay. Yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah. One of the neat things, too, that they did is they actually built as much of Lake Town for real as they could and you outside. Can, it shows. It, it really yeah. shows. And so a lot of those scenes, you know, I think that was what was so interesting about a lot of this movie is that there are many, many places where you're like, is that CG or is that real? That's what you want to be asking. Is that CG or is that real? Because that means you're doing your job with what's real and then what you're extending on later. And I think the Lake Town set and just, again, the way they're creating this whole venue and the, the milieu of, of this place is really well done. Just as it they had, you know, done in... Um, Minas Tirith or you know with the Rohan people there and everything just looks really really good it feels that place kind of feels oppressive and yeah it does all the down. spaces are yeah. so small like um when Tariel gets into the fight inside Bard's house that's it it reminded me a lot of the second Kill Bill movie where they're when she's fighting in the trailer with um with Daryl Hannah's character. It was such an enclosed space. And it made for a very different kind of action sequence. Which I really enjoyed. Because we've had so many wide open action sequences in this movie. Um, yeah, I love I love the oppressive nature of that whole set. 
Yeah, the claustrophobia for the dwarves uh, and the elves as they're fighting then there at the end uh, with the orcs, I think, was just fantastic. And then the scene that I think is so awesome is, you know, you have Legolas going off against Bolg mm-hmm. and it's a fight that Legolas is not expecting. I think he's used to being somebody who outmatches somebody very quickly. And I love the fact that he starts bleeding and he looks yeah. and it's like he's never seen his own blood. Yeah, that's exactly. I don't I wonder how long it's been since he's seen his own blood actually. Right. Right, exactly, which I think is so cool. I, I think it really adds a lot to that character. And this whole uh, just working of Lake Town and everything I think is is very well done. And it also does a great job, again, of building towards what's going to happen at the end where why, you know, the Master and Bard and all of these people in Lake Town have kind of a, a – a grudge now against Thorin because of what's happened with and what will happen with Smaug. So yeah. I, th- I think it just, it adds to that. And, you know, they're kind of thinking that Thorin and the dwarves are going to be their salvation. Well, kind of. Um, Remember, if you they didn't die think this in a through. Dragon attack. <laughs> exactly. They didn't think this through. So finally, we get to Erebor, which is funny because in the book they still... Before we get to Erebor, there's two things that happen in Lake Town that I was super excited about. So first, Stephen Colbert's cameo. Oh, yes, yes. If, you, if you're if you blinking, you'll miss you it, will but miss he's it. the guy with the eye patch. Yeah, so. my husband totally missed it when we watched it today. Um, and I think it might be his kids that run by. I know his whole family got to be in the movie. Um, but the other thing that I love is we finally get to see a Middle Earth toilet. Yes, yeah. <laughs> and the dwarves and, are crawling through it. <laughs> well, and a Middle Earth toilet that just sits on the lake. Yeah. That's nasty. <laughs> like, well, isn't that where you also get your water to drink? Probably. But you know, it makes sense. I don't know if you've ever visited a castle in real life. I visited a lot of castles, and medieval toilets were very disgusting. They were just... That is true. Yeah, just kind of holes and drop and... Yeah, right where people would actually walk. It was pretty gross. So, well, (laughs) goodness. Oh, man. Well, uh, I'm glad that we got to have the poo conversation. You got to have the poo talk. (laughs) Man, I wonder how big Smaug's poo is. Oh, God. (laughs) Hmm. Anyway... Well, on that note, uh, we will go to Erebor, and we finally get to the place that we've been going the whole time. And what did you think, especially? I mean, we'll just kind of walk through it. So Erebor was way different in the movie than I had pictured it um, when I read the book. Because when I read the book, it just felt like this very big, nondescript giant open space at least that's the way it was in my head with maybe a couple tunnels here and there and Peter Jackson just really came up with something totally different really really beautiful really intricate um and very dwarfish I thought it fit the dwarves really well with that giant smelting area and that great hall where they were going to build that ridiculous gold statue um, way different than I had pictured in my mind, but I really enjoyed it. I love the how it mirrors Moria, which we've already seen, but it also mirrors Thranduil's reign uh, and, and Elven Kingdom. And, and so 
there's it's like they put those two together yeah and married them and and the dwarves came up with their look because you know the dwarves weren't always unfriendly with the elves at that in that area of the country of middle earth and so they actually used to be friends and so it makes sense that in some ways the look of erebor has a little bit more of that open nature that you mm-hmm. get in Thranduil's um, kingdom, but some of the same, you know, looks and feels of Moria that we've already, you know, we've already established through the Lord of the Rings, and and obviously, you know, it comes from the same type of people. So, I, yeah, I'm with you. I I think it blew me away with what he came up with. I knew it was going to be something big because. Uh, Tolkien doesn't do a ton of describing, which is kind of strange for Tolkien. Yeah. Um, but uh, I really liked what they came up with. Even just the area where the door was. Yeah. Um, I thought was a really, really awesome way to, you know, have that secret door. They have to climb up the statue. And, um, you know, that whole scene I thought was played perfectly. I really loved all of that. Yeah. I mean, it was, um, it was it feels like a really twisty, turny place. You know how we were saying earlier, I'd love to hang out um, in the Woodland Kingdom and just kind of wander around for days. I don't know if I'd want to wander around Airborne because I'd be worried about getting lost and dying of starvation. Yeah, yeah. I, I feel like they need more signs. Yeah, lots of signage. You know? Make yeah, sure people know exactly. where they're going. Um, you know, this way to, you know, Woodland Kingdom, this way to the throne room, you know, this yeah, the uh, throne room, 4.2 kilometers that way, you know. <laughs> <Yeah>. uh, <laughs> I'm sure that place is huge. Yeah. Well, and I think that what it, what it really did too is it allowed them to, to create the enormity of Smaug. Yeah. And so I just kind of want to really dive in to talk about first him as a character and the creation digitally and everything. What did you think? Because we all kind of have an idea in our heads. And to me, the idea always was the drawing from Tolkien of the red dragon on the map Mm -hmm. that we have. And that's from him, him, uh, Tolkien himself. So that's always been my picture what did you end up thinking when you first saw him, you know, come on screen? Well, at the time that I saw the movie for the very first time, I hadn't read the book yet. And um, my, all of my knowledge of Smaug came from The Lord of the Rings, and I hadn't really seen a lot of Tolkien's drawings. So, um, you know, I didn't have any pre-expectations. I really enjoy the size of him. And I love his teeth. I think his teeth are fantastic. Um, In some ways, I think overall his design has kind of been done a little bit. Um, I feel like... I feel like we've kind of developed this idea of the dragon and no one has really deviated from that in a really long time. Uh, Especially if you look back at like the... What year was it? Like 1977 that the cartoon came out? Um, Yeah, with a... Bank and Rass cartoon, yeah. Yeah, and Smaug in that looks totally different. Um, really weird and out there. Um, but that being said, like, he is a dragon. We are living in a modern age where people have an idea of what a dragon should look like. Um, so overall, I enjoyed him. I loved his teeth. The way his mouth moved when he talked. And, of course, Benedict Cumberbatch um, voicing the dragon was just a brilliant idea. I think that 
you know, watching the extras, that's one of the things they talk about is creating the dragon. And it took them a very long time to come up with a look for Smaug because they even talk about, look, we've seen dragons before. You know, we've seen Dragonheart with, uh, you know, uh, Sean Connery as as Draco. You know, we also have seen Reign of Fire with some really amazing dragons there. You know, we've seen dragons. Yeah. And we've seen them done pretty well on screen and so what are we going to do here and they did all sorts of crazy designs for this dragon and then they realized we kind of need Smaug to feel like he's the the progenitor of all of these dragons you know we need him to be like the original dragon because he kind of is kind of is yeah that's an excellent point so um we need him to look very classic and yet um, we needed him to move and feel real and all of those things the same way. Look, this character has to be as real on screen as we felt like Gollum was and the 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 two towers and um in the return of the king. And I think they just pulled that off. Like you said, the way his mouth moves and everything mm-hmm. is just fantastic. In fact, I love when he first kind of gets up. And you see his head, and he has these jowls at the bottom where his neck is, and it just kind of moves, yeah, you know, with him. And so there's this touch of like age to him and everything as well. I just he totally sells it, and I really love, um, you know, Benedict Cumberbatch watching the extras and watching how much he put into his voice performance, like. He would get on the ground and he'd be like writhing and moving and just, it was... He went all out. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. So, you know, and I think that speaks to the way that Peter Jackson is able to get people and draw them out, these really amazing performances, even when they're just doing voice capture. Yeah. Yeah, one of the other things I really liked about Smaug too that I just thought of is... I love when he walks, he's got kind of like these weird bat elbows on his front legs. Um, I love the way that looked. I thought that I thought that was one of the more unique things about his design. Well, and he was supposed to have four legs. And actually... And then wings the, in addition to that. Exactly. Yeah. And in the original movie, the scene where, you know, they're telling the story about... Um, Erebor being taken over for the first time the dragon has four legs they 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 obviously haven't done the rest of the design they didn't even know what the dragon was going to look like at that point that that they actually had to go back and they changed the dragon in the dvd release so that it matched what they were creating for desolation of smaug so what you saw originally in the theater which nobody will remember at this point was different than what you got in the DVD release and then now obviously with what he looks like. So yeah, Peter Jackson ended up liking that look a lot more. He felt like it just, um, it, it, it made him look like less of a dog. Yeah. He's like, I don't want him to look like a dog basically. Yeah. Like going back to, cause you brought up, um, because you brought up Dragonheart earlier, that was very much the way Draco was designed. He kind of walked like a dog with wings tucked back. Um, and, but I really enjoyed like his bat walk, those elbows sticking up while he was yeah, chasing after it's, Bilbo. It's a little bit creepier. Too. Yeah, it's like, way it creepier. Just, yeah. 
Um, I yeah, I think it is fantastic. One of the the benefits though of having a book instead of a movie is the ability to tell the audience things uh, as the narrator. And so, you know, if you haven't read the book, you don't understand why Smaug is letting Bilbo live for so long. Yeah. And, you know, for those who are geeks or all kinds of things like that, you know, we kind of understand that on a whole, dragons throughout literature and throughout the genre tend to be very riddle-driven and they love riddle-driven conversation. Um, They love to be challenged like that. And Bilbo is very good at that. And the other reason that Bilbo doesn't tell him his name because name ha- names have power and they convey a lot of information as well. And so uh, this whole game, Bilbo's trying not to give away too much. And then, of course, he's let slip with the barrel rider. And so this whole game they're playing, Bilbo's trying to live. He- he's also trying to keep Smaug off his game by not telling him too much. And it's it's a really cool thing. I think it makes it a much inter- more interesting scene in the book and obviously in the film that they're having this whole riddle match. Yeah, it's the second riddle battle we see Bilbo get into, right? And he's really good at them. Sunday, 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 <laughs> riddle battle here at Erebor. Who do you think they're going to add as his riddle battle companion or his riddle battle opponent in the third movie? They got to have a riddle battle in the third <laughs> That's movie, That's true. Right? There's no riddle battle in the in the third part of the movie. What I really love, though, is the very small uh, bits of detail that they will put in and they, where they do try to stay true to the book. And as I was watching it today, I realized that Bilbo has a golden cup in his hand yeah, when Smaug wakes up. Yeah, he grabs that cup when all the gold falls and it reveals Smaug's eye. I loved mm-hmm. that detail, too. Yeah, and it's it's um it's really perfect because that's exactly why Smaug wakes up is because he realizes that Bilbo has stolen a golden cup from him. And uh, then, of course, a lot of the dialogue between them is just lifted straight from the book. Yeah, and it is. I think it just, it's it's perfection the way that they do it. So it's, this whole scene, even though it's different than it is in the book, is just so well done. And uh, again, it's adding to... What they're telling the story here is that, you know, Smaug even says, I'm tempted to let you have the Arkenstone just so I can watch Thorin go crazy after you give it to him. Like, this whole idea that there's this sickness that lies on this treasure and everything, I think is really interesting and really driving that home. So, well, one of the last parts of the movie that we haven't really talked about is Dolgador and Gandalf's whole adventure. You know, he leaves in The Hobbit in the book and we don't really know why and we actually never find out why until we read Tolkien's extended writings but we find out that he's gone one to check out the High Fells where the Witch King and the rest of the Ringwraiths are buried and finds those tombs empty and realizes that something is bringing things back from the dead and travels to Dogodor and what did you think about this scene you've seen the theatrical version and then the extended cut has some added scenes what did you think about this whole battle between Gandalf and Sauron basically well I thought it was um I think it's an interesting precursor to hopefully what we're going to see more of in the third movie um I don't know one of the things that I struggle with with the Hobbit films is the way that they're bringing in the Lord of the Rings aspects and bringing in stuff from um, the unfinished tales and bringing in stuff from um, the Cimmerillion. 
And it's because they're trying to tie all of that universe together. I think it's an interesting part of the story. I don't know. It's hard for me to articulate how I feel about it because I've got mixed feelings. On the one hand, I like seeing Gandalf battle. On the other hand, I want to just get back to dragon slaying with Bilbo. what i what i think is interesting and what i kind of came to was that this movie and the hobbit story for even i think tolkien himself kind of became that precursor it's um he realized that in this story what gandalf goes to do is stop voldemort's first return you know um that's basically kind of what it is is that Sauron is trying to return to the world and he's returned as this ghost of himself a lot like uh, Voldemort does and this ghost of himself is is manifesting itself as a necromancer and if he can gain enough power he could come back full on especially if he's able to get this hold on this um, northeastern part of the world Uh, and you know, if he can gain Erebor and he can gain the 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 alliance with the orcs and Smaug, he will have a firm foothold in Middle Earth begin take over again. And I thought that was just a really interesting when I started thinking about it kind of in this Harry Potter idea of this is kind of his first plan of return, the same way Voldemort tries to come back a few times before he actually does. This made a lot of sense, and it really made sense of why they're combining this material as well, because Tolkien himself started to think about it a little bit different after The Lord of the Rings and had added these different things in these other places, and when you pull it all together, it does kind of make a more cohesive story, and I really enjoyed uh, Gandalf facing off against... Um, and, and the fact that he, he can hold his own for a little while and then he, he loses his staff. You know, this staff is different. That was so tragic. One. Yeah, it is very sad. Um, but it, it will lead to the third movie where I think Galadriel gets to come and kick some serious ass. Which so I'm, I'm really looking forward yeah. to. Yeah. So. yeah, I'm really interested to see. I feel like there's more coming after this Dolgaldor scene that I just don't know where... I don't necessarily know where Peter Jackson's going to take it in the third movie. So I have a suspicion that what we see here, we're going to get some more payoff or some more, we're going to get some more information about what's going on there in the third movie. I have a, I I think I know what's going to change in the third movie. Um, We'll see if I'm right. Well, and two in the extended version, which I'm excited for you get to see and anybody who hasn't seen it is that the, there's a lot more to Doggledore. Uh, mm. Gandalf finds Thrain, who is um, Thorin's father. Right. And uh, in in the extended material, that's where he got the map and the key was from Thrain, who he meets at Doggledore, who has gone crazy, who doesn't even know who he is at that point. And Gandalf doesn't actually even know who he is when he meets him in the book. So they're changing things here to work with what they've done in the movie. But I thought it was really interesting for them to add him back in and kind of, again, just strengthening that storyline of that uh, Sauron has, is trying to come back. He's gained uh, as many of the rings from the dwarves as he's, he can because he's had Thrain. All of those kind of things coming together I thought were really cool. Another thing that was really neat is that in the book, 
it's not Azog the Defiler who's after them. It's Bolg. And he's the one who shows up at the end with the goblin and the orc armies. Right. So I thought it was kind of neat since they have been using Azog. They actually brought in Bolg. Um, and that was just a nice thing for those of us who read the book and know who Bolg is. He's actually the one who was chasing the dwarves in the first place. So that's right. I thought that that was really nice. So um, I'm not really sure why they kept Azog alive and didn't just use Bolg the whole time. Yeah, I was wondering that myself, too. I don't know. So maybe some other geeks out there can just send us an email and let us know what their thoughts on that or, or hit us up in the Babel conference. So, well, okay. We are, wow, we are running as long as the movie here. But <laughs> I just want to talk about a couple more things. I think it was neat. There's actually some kind of cool themes in the movie. Um, and, yeah. Uh, the, the idea of like really holding on to, to grudges and, and how that's really damaging to the future. I thought that that was really neat to kind of see play out between the elves and the dwarves here with Thranduil and, and Thorin kind of going at each other. And really it's, um, in a lot of ways, Keeley and, and Tariel and Legolas and those characters kind of bridging that gap. Yeah, um, definitely I think the theme of holding on to old grudges um, really makes itself apparent when... Um, when Thorin is talking to Thranduil, I mean, he's just so stubborn about all of these past events that happened between him and the elves. Um, and I do like to see this gap being bridged with... I like how Tariel reminds Legolas that this is also their fight. It's not just the dwarves' fight because they do live in this world and they should care because these are all the people that they encounter on a daily basis, or at least that they should be, you know? Yeah, exactly. And the whole, you know, hiding your head in the sand is is really not the way to live. And, you know, we should fight injustice where we see it. I think that's a great theme for this film and and one that, you know... um, the great thought thing about The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings is they're full of amazing themes. You know, Tolkien is not somebody who liked allegory, but he did a lot of thematic material. And there's a, a great many things that you can pull from his books and even from the films as well. So I, I really liked that. And I think it's a great message just for the the world in which we live. You know, um, it, it's, a, it's a message that we all need to hear more often. Yeah, and one of the really big themes that jumped out to um, to Alice and I when we read the book was um, that greed is a really big theme in the book. And I feel like this theme of holding on to old grudges, it's really going to play itself into a greed theme. We already start to see that with Smaug in this movie, but we might. I think we're going to see even more of that in the third movie. Yeah, definitely. Well, you know, Yoda said, fear leads to anger. Anger leads, leads to, to hate. hate. And fate leads to suffering. So, uh, and he was he was right. So. He's a wise young man. Yeah, he really is. So, uh, one of the neat things that just uh, is worth kind of wrap it up. I, I noticed that you know, obviously, if you've read a lot of Tolkien, Tolkien likes to mirror his history um, in Middle Earth, and Baron and Luthien are mirrors for Aragorn and Arwen uh, of the elf maiden and the. Um, human who fall in love with each other and so I thought it was really interesting that they are playing on that theme again with Keely and Tariel and not all the time 
do these stories work out for the characters? Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. And this is going to be one if they follow the book that doesn't because Keeley's going to die. Spoiler alert. Spoilers. Spoilers. Yeah, make sure I you should put actually, your River Song I should get that and make there. it. Spoilers. <laughs> um, so, and, and I just think that that's really neat. And again, as well, as Tolkien kind of rethought the the Hobbit and added to it afterwards, you know, in the end, Sauron's first attempt at coming back here kind of mirrors his his what's going to happen next is he's going to come back, try and come back another way, and so and gain a hook, a foothold in, in Middle Earth again, and so um, I think that that's just a really neat thing to see and the way that the way that they've moved for these films is to make it feel like it's part of the universe that they've already created and to try connect them and I think that that's smart but it doesn't just feel like they're just retelling the same story because it's not the same story and I really like that so um, Megan for you final thoughts on the desolation of Smaug or as Peter Jackson would say Schmaug Schmaug um, I think it's a great second film um I'm really excited to see what's going to happen in the third movie. Um, I really enjoyed all of the new locations that we got to see in this. And I really, I really enjoyed getting to see um, a little bit more of the elves this time around. Um, I, I know it's a tiny little moment, but I still am so stuck on that little introduction to Gimli that Legolas gets because that's one of my favorite bromances of all time. So the fact that there's even just a nod to it in this movie just makes me so happy. And more Benedict Cumberbatch's Smaug. I can't wait for that. That's going to be great. Well, yeah, and he also plays the necromancer as well. Oh, that's movie. right. He does, yeah. doesn't he? So he he double dips. And it's He's the just same taking way that, over Hollywood. Yeah. Well, John Reese davies um, played Treebeard in the original Lord of the Rings film. That's so right, he th- did. It was interesting that they did the same thing. They just had an actor come in. And yeah, and as the necromancer, he's almost unrecognizable. You have to listen really closely to be like, oh, that's Benedict Cumberbatch. So. Well, I thought he was almost unrecognizable as Smog, too. So. Yeah, he's fantastic. Yeah, good for uh, him. Just a, yeah, no kidding. Well, you know, for me, I was watching this film and I, I really came down to this. This is the Empire Strikes Back of the Hobbit series. Definitely. Um, and nobody complains at all about the Empire Strikes Back not really having a firm resolution. I mean, if you were just left with the Empire Strikes Back and they never made Return of the Jedi... There would be riots mm-hmm. in the geek streets. Yeah, I mean, it, it would just not make any sense. You literally need... It is a bridging film. It, it tells enough of the story to get you to want to watch the end of the story. And that's the same thing that this film does. And I think it does it the same way that The Empire Strikes Back does. It takes everybody. It gives you more character development. And it leaves you in the worst possible place where everybody is in the worst possible position they could be in. And you're wondering how the heck are they going to get out of this. And so it, it leaves you on the other seat waiting for the next film you literally just want to pop in the next movie you just want to go to the movies and so luckily uh, by that point that this comes out everybody has probably seen the the battle of the five armies and has enjoyed that and so i think that this is a great film um i think that this is in a much better version of the hobbit than the first film um i, I remember yeah the first time that i saw this coming out of the movie theater thinking that was awesome. That was what I expected more of. 
again, I'm not knocking the first movie. I just think that because I'm a Lord of the Rings fan, I'd already seen so much of that. Yeah, this one was much less of a Lord of the Rings repeat. Exactly. And I think that this is a very strong movie. So if you were going to give this, you know, kind of the star rating that we did, uh, or just, you know, how you did last time, you, you said you really liked it. What are the words that popped into your head for this movie? Hmm. Hanging out with you guys, you guys have given me bad habits for my ratings. I want to give this one three smaugs out of smaug. Wow. <laughs> I feel like triple smaug is a huge rating uh, for this film. You know, if I you know was going to give this a star rating because I gave, I think, a 7, 7.5 last time out of 10, I would probably rate this 8.5. That's, because I think it's that's a high yeah, rating. That's high yeah, praise. It's that much. Yeah, it's that much better. I think than the first movie. You know, um, and it's it's much closer to the ratings that I would give the original film, which I would probably rank it. You know, like a the first movie a seven point five. I'd rank the second movie a nine, and I rank the uh, last movie probably an eight point five. So. Yeah, for a real rating for this, I think I'd give it like a 7.5. I think I gave the other one what, like a 6. Um, you I gave think, it 6.5, yeah. Yeah, I think I I'd think. give this one a 7.5. Yeah, yeah, that sounds great, man. Well, it has been so much fun, Megan, talking to you today about the destination of Smaug. But it's not the only thing that we've been talking about Trek FM in the past week. So here's a quick look at some of the other things you may have missed elsewhere on the network. Previously on Trek.fm, Standard Orbit. And, and so I was biased against it. it. Even when I started buying the, the two-disc collector's edition DVDs, I avoided buying any of the even-numbered movies. Odd-numbered Odd movies. Numbered movies. <laughs> Earl Grey. Like, uh, like they stated in the end of the movie, you know, they thought he'd outlive all of them. And I'm like, yeah, that's what should have happened. We should have seen Data, like in the you know, 26th century, like Data 5.0, whatever we call them. To the journey! You don't know if she's going to stab him or smooch him. She's going to smooch him, of course, after dessert. <laughs> after dessert. We all know what dessert means. Warp 5. Along with technology and along with trying to study the origins of a lot of different things that we've come to know in, in the original series and beyond, it's hard to try and deconstruct it without insulting what has come in all of the things that we know of being Vulcan Mind Melt. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. And my thought was, in the next scene, Crusher should have the body of the dead Klingon sitting on the back of her toilet holding a candle. You know, <laughs> which she would only get to do after Lieutenant Yara's gotten to hold the dead Klingon up to her ear to see if she can hear the ocean. Commentary, Trek stars. Everything you would imagine would be in an opening title sequence for this show is in there. I think the shot that really does it for me, the shot that really pulls everything together is when he dunks the basketball. <laughs> Melodic tricks. So we do know an awful lot of people get associated with Vic Fontaine. He name drops to the nth degree about all the famous people that he hangs around with. One of whom is Frank Sinatra. Axinar, the official podcast. When there's a possibility for something to be misunderstood or um, not clearly explained, it can potentially open up a big hole for a show because people can end up going down a path that was actually not what somebody wanted to be done. The 602 Club. What are those Bond movies that you go back to time and time again because 
they just do it better. Uh, first of all, Matthew, nobody does it better. That's true. Uh, it makes um, me feel sad for the rest. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. Check out these shows and find out what we've been talking about in your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe. And of course, now beyond, especially Middle Earth these days. And you'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit that subscribe button. It really helps us out greatly and it makes it easier for other listeners to find the show and searches out on iTunes. And if you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone. And of course, you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website and grab the RSS link as well. Now, Megan, I know that um, Alice couldn't be here tonight, but hopefully she'll be back next week. Tell everybody where we can find you guys, though, online and and, uh, some of the podcasts that y'all do as well. So Alice and I are the executive producers for a media group called Educating Geeks. Um, And our whole thing is that we like to bring new people into our favorite fandoms. And actually this month we are putting out our own Hobbit podcast. So it's a Hobbit-tastic month for us. (laughs) Um, So our Hobbit episode I think will come out the same week as this one. Um, And then we'll be putting out Hobbit drinking game rules as well. We like to come up with a drinking game rule for any topic that we do. And then for the Trek fans out there, um, our host Bree does a regular series called All the Trek where she's watching every single episode of Star Trek um, because she hasn't actually seen a whole lot of Star Trek. We are almost finished with the original series and then she's going to dive right into Next Generation starting in 2015. So that should be pretty cool. Um, And you can find us on educatinggeeks.com. And then we are Educating Geeks on Twitter, Facebook, Google Plus, and Tumblr. So it's really easy to find us. Awesome. Well, man, I'm so glad that you got a chance to join us uh, again. And I'll look forward to getting talk Battle of the Five Armies next time. Yeah, real soon. I'm looking forward to it. Another way that you can keep all of our shows coming to you each week is to become a patron of the network on Patreon. If you visit patreon.com slash trekfm, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm, you'll find our current goals and milestone contribution levels along with all the great perks we have for you. These perks include early access to content, exclusive content, producer credits, seats on our content development team, and more. We really appreciate any support that you can give to us, and we hope that you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. I also want to give a shout out to Ryan123450 on iTunes. And he gave us a great review, a five-star review. I really want to thank you for that, Ryan. Guys, it helps out so greatly for people to be able to find the shows when you give us a star review and a rating. And of course, just like Ryan there, if you give us that, we'll definitely give you that shout out on the show. Thank you so much, Ryan. I really appreciate you. Spend the time to go on and give us that rating. It means a lot to me. I want to say a special thank you to our associate producer, Norman C. Lau, and his support of the network and the 602 Club. His Twitter account is at Norman Lau, and he's a big supporter of the Star Trek Axonar project and can be found on their official Facebook page as well as the Babel Conference. And last but not least, he's a huge supporter of the network on Patreon. You can always contact us at trek.fm slash contact. You can leave a voicemail, look in the sidebar on the show page, or go to speakpipe.com slash trek.fm. We're on Twitter at trek.fm. 
Facebook at facebook.com slash trekfm. You can also find us at the Babel Conference, our listeners-only discussion group. Just type the Babel Conference, that's B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook, or go to our website at trek.fm and click the discussion on the menu bar. Before we go, we'd like to ask everyone to please support our sponsor who helps bring the 602 Club and all of our shows to you each week. And our sponsor for the show is Audible.com. Audible is a great way to just read all those books that you just never thought you'd have time for. And as a Trek FM listener, you can get a free audiobook of your choice along with a 30-day trial to see how great Audible is. Just go to audibletrial.com slash trekfm and sign up today. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash trekfm, and we thank Audible for their support of the 602 Club and the network. And don't forget to check out Enterprise in Space, a project of the nonprofit National Space Society that will design and launch an 8-foot orbiter and return the craft to Earth. The NSS Enterprise Orbiter will carry more than 100 student design science experiments into space, and you can help make that happen. Visit enterpriseinspace.org to find out more and get your seat on the mission. And of course, guys, you can find me at MattRushing02 on Twitter. You can also find me doing literary treks with Dan, where we talk about the books and comics of Star Trek. You can find me doing The Orb with Christopher Jones, where it's all about Deep Space Nine all the time. And of course, you can also find me in my own personal blog at 42lifeinbetween.wordpress.com. Well, thank you so much for joining us, and y'all come back now, you hear? you hear?